Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry. And gosh, it's going to be a delightful conversation ahead because today we are speaking with Ryder Delaloy. He is the Associate Director for C Learning, and C stands for Social, Emotional, and Ethical Learning. And it's a program at the Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics, which is located within Emory University in the United States. As you'll see, he's a practitioner of education and learning. He has a, a whole raft of experience as a teacher and administrator, all the way from second grade to graduate school, having taught in public and private schools and universities across the United States and also around the world. Prior to the role as Associate Director of C Learning, his research and school engagement focused on whole school and district transformation, leadership, social studies education, sustainability, civics, and social emotional learning. Ryder believes that education is a vehicle for interpersonal growth, growth and societal change. And he is grounded, I think in a good way, by his wife and children with whom he loves to play and go on adventures in the mountains, including climbing adventures I was just hearing about Ryder. Um, he received his doctorate in curriculum and instruction from the University of Montana. Ryder, it's wonderful to see you again. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you very much. It's a great privilege and honor to be with you. Thank you. May I'm very much looking forward to where this is going to go. As you know, our conversations are really emergent. Um, we start with one grounding question, which is what is something that you have been learning recently that's come into your field of awareness? Yeah, it's a good, good question. I I guess I want to lead with that with, you know, as you share my bio, I, hmm. I mean, it's all true, but it feels a little <laughs> hyped up. So I, I guess I want to kind of qualify that to maybe preface this whole thing with, I'm not an expert in anything other than maybe making mistakes. I'm pretty good at that. And I've done pretty well by myself on that basis. But maybe one thing to substantiate myself is I'm pretty hungry and and I'm pretty driven, but not, not in the kind of conventional ways of reputation or status or anything of that nature. I, I just, I really believe there is something underlying the need to grow, the need to kind of question much of mm. what we are experiencing. And so, yeah, I find myself through life circumstance in this role at the Center for Contemplative Science and Compassion-Based Ethics, which is a mouthful, mm. um, but it, it yeah, really, it really holds all of those elements. I mean, at the center at Emory, we engage in contemplative tradition, you know, thousand years old contemplative tradition. And we align that with best practices in terms of both research and evidence-based practices. So we're looking at science and we're substantiating many of the claims that we know inside ourselves and have been established through these ancient wisdom traditions, yeah. which is palatable for many in the outside world. Here I was, you know, an engaged, maybe charismatic, but not a master educator by any measure. And and now I'm here in this role. So the question that you ask, which is, you know, what have you been learning? I've been taking it seriously um, because I, I wasn't raised up academia in, in this area. And so yeah. I remember at a symposium last year, I went to the people that were raised up academia and I said, what's your top 10? Top 10 list of books that I should be reading because I felt like I needed an education in the field of compassion science and contemplative science. And, yeah. you know, so 
I took it pretty seriously. And over the last year, I've, I've really dug in. One reading that I'm engaging in right now is really looking at this, the intersection of trauma and well-being mm. and, and recognizing that part of what's spurring this is, is I also read an article recently about chronic absenteeism yeah. and how prevalent instance of it has only accelerated by like 67% since the pandemic. That's and the way that we define chronic absenteeism in the States is 10%. So if you have a school year that lasts 180 days and you're absent 10% or more, that's 18 days. That's chronic absenteeism as the federal definition. Wow. When you think about the implications that that has on learning, on relationship yeah. and on engagement, it's significant, right? So one of the things this article dug into was this idea of, we need to pro promote relationships. We need to create a sense of belonging. We need to have a feeling of purpose. Yeah. And I don't think schools, for the most part, have a strong command of what that looks like. Mm. And so, you know, there there feels to be this 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 window of opportunity as we're learning this, as we're engaging with it, that compassion science is is an, is a vehicle by which wow. we can cultivate relationship. And I'll. I'll add this other piece and then I'll turn it over to you for any sure. kind of thoughts within that. Yeah. There's another book I've been digging into called The Good Life. And the Good Life is about the Harvard Adult Development Study. Yes. And this development study spans 80 years and it looks at factors of well being. So every year they do an extensive multiple hour survey. Every second year they do health screenings, very, very rigorous health screenings. The third year, they do in-person interviews. Not only do they have the original thousand plus participants, but now because it's in its third generation, family members and so forth and so on. There are also longitudinal studies on adult development or human happiness, human well-being, studies in New Zealand, studies in Europe, studies so forth. And resoundingly, the conclusion of all of these studies with the huge array of data is that when they ask the question, what is the good life? What is human flourishing and what is well-being? They continually come back to relationship. Yeah, That relationship is the strongest determining factor amongst class, amongst health, amongst wealth, amongst race, amongst all of it. Relationship, the ability to cultivate positive relationships leads to human flourishing. Mm -hmm. I'm talking longevity, right? People mm -hmm. that live longer, which is something we all want. If you come back to compassion science, and you think about the implications of that. Life sucks. You are constantly being thrown things that cause you to be put on your ass. It's hard, it's difficult, it's uncomfortable, and there are an array of issues that continually undermine your well-being. The skill set of relationship is compassion. It's the ability to lean in when people need help as opposed to push away. It's the ability to attune and to have empathetic concern as opposed to an ego response. Yes. Your capacity for relationship, your capacity to expand your circle of concern is human flourishing. Yeah. And if we can train teachers and students in compassion studies, compassion science as a skill set, I think we can alleviate those issues of chronic absenteeism. I think we can alleviate those, those significant deterrents that we're facing in our school setting. So I guess that's what I've been thinking about recently. Mate, fantastic. Clearly. Clearly, if you tell me deeper, nah, it's there's so much that we can talk through there. Let's start with compassion science, 
because I would say that many people listening understand what compassion is, but haven't got a background as you do in the scientific exploration of, of what might be that emotion or that action. And so just, just take us into that world somewhat, because I think the thing that I'm so fascinated by is, is the synthesis between let's say crudely the East and the Western traditions, for example, you know, modern psychological study, positive psychology movement that Seligman, you know, popularized, et cetera. But then beyond that kind of the well-being science field, and of course, well-being in my journeys and travels is such a critical component of, of educational leader thinking at the moment. Um, it always has been, but of course, post-COVID and everything else, be it absenteeism, be it mental health, be it social cohesion, be it age of anxiety. I mean, there's so many interesting aspects there. So give us a bit of a rundown on compassion science. Just, you know, what yeah. do you mean by that? What do we know categorically through some of the studies um, are of benefit towards our longevity and and by the way big fan of the good life and the work of the you know the study i remember watching the ted talk we share it through our work you know oh, yeah. like the quality of our relation relation to the quality of being you know that being such a critical component of a great school a great classroom um, yeah. yeah a happy person happy person. so yeah. the i again i want to qualify just a little bit you know I, there are colleagues in, in my midst that that do this work that engage in this research i just want to preface mm -hmm. my response with with that the the area of compassion science let me hold a little space for the emergence of the field and then we'll get into some of the specifics but right this is not a one-off in the context of emory university we have compassion science in so many areas harvard yale stanford oh so within compassion science we are starting to see the emergence of centers and Harvard and Yale, um, University of Virginia with their Contemplative Science Center, uh, the Center for uh, Healthy Minds out of the University of Wisconsin. Mm. We're, we're recognizing more and more are coming up. So within the compassion science piece, what we see is a relationship between resilience and compassion. So one of the assumptions that are made here first and foremost is that human beings are pro-social mm. and they're pro-social largely from an evolutionary standpoint that they have been designed and have developed in such a way that leads to their flourishing by social interactions, positive social interactions. Yeah. And so one of the things that underpins compassion science is evolutionary biology. So really looking at the traits, the dispositions, and, and acknowledging that it's not survival of the fittest, it is survival of the kindest, right? These pro-social connections lead to reciprocity, right? So one of the researchers that we draw from is a primatologist from Emory University. His name is Franz Duwall, and he looks at reciprocal relationships. So in 7,000 instances of grooming behavior with bonobos, what was observed was the high likelihood of food sharing events as a result of that. So the bonobos that groomed each other shared food with each other. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense, right? We have reciprocity. From there, one of the things that has been contributed on the part of what we call the Nanlanda tradition, which is a tradition, the Indo-Tibetan Buddhist tradition, uh, that looks at we can use our, our rational minds. We can use our evolutionary heritage of the prefrontal cortex to now extend our circle of concern. So instead of just the bonobo that grooms us, that we, but it could be 
others, right? So there's a fascinating study uh, done with Manchester United fans. I think this right. is a really important study. Oh, how interesting. Oh, yeah, I'm sure some yeah. fans are probably listening to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, or or could really agitate and, and dysregulate some people. So however this shakes out, I apologize. But nevertheless, uh, so they, they bring together some Manchester United fans and they set the stage for them to uh, be primed to be a Manchester United fan, right? You love Manchester. I love Manchester. Go Manchester. And they say, oh, can you please finish the rest of the survey, walk across campus and complete it? As they walk across campus, having been primed as a Manchester United fan, they see a person who needs help. And that person happens to be wearing a Manchester jersey. 92% of the time, they help them out because they're they're my in-group. You know, that's my person. We bleed blood, the red blood together, right? Yes. And so second person comes in, they are primed equally as a Manchester fan, and they walk across campus. This time they see a person needing help, but they're wearing a Liverpool jersey. Ooh, bit of a problem on that one, right? They're not even human. They're subhuman. I'm not going to help you. So only 30% of the time do they help out the Liverpool fan. Interesting. Interesting. Third person comes in, equally Manchester fan, equally primed, walks across campus, sees a person with no jersey. And again, only 30% of the time do they help them out. Okay. We know that. It makes sense. We have in-group bias. We have in-group association. Mm-hmm. We have caring, compassionate responses. Redo the study. New people, equally Manchester fans. Bring a person in. But instead of priming them to be a Manchester fan, we prime them to be a fan of football. The great uh, sport. A sport that wow. unifies us. A sport that brings us together. Same protocol. Walk yes. across campus. See a person who needs help wearing a Manchester jersey. This time they help them out 80% of the time. A little less, right? So they're not as biased in that way, but they still help them out more times than not. Second person comes in primed to be a lover of football, but they're a Manchester fan. When they walk by the Liverpool fan this time, they help them out 70% of the time. Oh my gosh. When the study does the third person and they're primed to be a football fan and they walk past an unbranded jersey, they only help them out 22% of the time. What has not happened with these individuals is eight weeks of cognitively-based compassion training. What has not happened, which is our, our compassion training program yeah. uh, for adults, what has not happened is years of contemplative practice. What has not happened is, you know, being a part of the, you know, the adult development study. Mm-hmm. What has happened is priming to extend the in-group association, to shift the bias from being a fan of Manchester to being a fan of football. That study alone conveys that we are compassionate and pro-social. What we need in order to achieve that, though, is it's very difficult to be compassionate and pro-social when you're dysregulated. It's very difficult to be compassionate and pro-social when you don't have compassion for yourself. And so we recognize that the precedent causes for compassion for others is resiliency strategies. And I'll I'll highlight one and then I'll turn it back over to you for thoughts. That's great. Yeah, I'm loving this, Radha. Really good. So there was an app that was created. Richard Davidson, the University of Wisconsin, references this often in his work. In that app, there were two questions that populated. One that said, are you paying attention? And the second one that said, uh, Sorry, the first question, forgive me, was what are you doing? And the second question was, are you paying attention? Right. And this app would populate these two questions throughout the day. And what they found was is that 47% of the time, 
people were not present with what they were doing. In oh, and of itself, I've heard this data. Yeah. 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 It, it kind of makes sense, right? It, it, it's yeah. not really that problematic. Mind wandering is a good thing. It leads to creativity, it leads to all these other great things. But the one problem of mind wandering that is consequential is that it leads us down one of our other very strong evolutionary traits, which is negativity bias. So we have a tendency to ruminate about the things we can't control or the things we can't change. So a future that is outside of our control or a past that we can't change. And we amplify that. We exaggerate it. We create something that isn't valid. And then we ruminate upon that. That trait undermines our well-being, erodes our resilience, and causes us not to be capable of reciprocating compassion or engaging in compassionate responses, whereas we know that that is our human flourishing. So those two pieces for me would be uh -huh. a, a brief summary of resilience and compassion. I'll end with this, which is compassion is not a vestige. It's not a pithy quote that exists on a wall. The way that we define compassion at the center is the desire, the ability to alleviate the suffering of others with tenderness and care those require certain skill sets. It requires skill sets of expanding our circle of concern. It requires skill sets of engaging critically because handing that $20 bill to you know, the drug addict may not be a compassionate response. So we need systems yeah. thinking and discernment. We also need the ability to have our nervous system regulation so that we are capable of doing that. So the compassion science is a holistic approach to human well-being and essentially human flourishing. Mate, so interesting. Oh man, yeah, the, the, the study on the football, the priming. I mean, I, I just, I have a bunch of questions that I want to tap into. One, one reflection is that this priming piece is so critical for our work in education and schools, even positive priming, right? Where we can get a collective moment of levity before we launch into something and how that can unlock creativity, for example, within a group or to create the in-group themselves, you know, like hence... Um, but to expand that in-group to be humanity, right, or the community or the whole school community as opposed to yeah. my, my, you know, and that that piece, I'm really interested in a couple of things. One is in regulation. You talked about dysregulation. I want you to take us into, like, I don't know, psychophysiological coherence, whatever, however yeah. you might talk yeah. to it, yeah. right, about like how do you know when you're regulated because I think – Anyone listening to this podcast uh, would be, you know, one of the great challenges is to stay regulated in a world that is screaming at you for your attention consistently. Yeah. Um, and of course, has that, if it bleeds, it leads negativity bias baked into media, uh, you know, constantly triggering like our, um, our fear-based response. Well, I better have a look at that, you know? So I wonder about that. And the, and the other question I have is, is kind of about the self-compassion piece. I think when you, you know, a lot of the schools that we work alongside, um, these amazing educators talk about just the, the sheer pressure that is that young people feel and often place on themselves to be perfect or, you know, in a world where it's all about being augmented now cognitively through machine learning and AI, but also aesthetically through Instagram, you know, any, any kind of photo sharing application, yeah. cloud plus AI, the whole thing. So I wonder about those two pieces, one on regulation and the second on self-compassion and what kind of models or what you've seen and, you know, what really works to build that resilience. Because I know that every single learning setting 
is kind of asking themselves these questions as well. Yeah, no, thank you. Those are both really important questions. Regarding self-regulation, our, our ability to read our sensory responses is, is one of the key pieces of this. So almost cultivating an early warning system. Mm. So we, we interface with the world, we interface with ourselves. We have these gives, you know, just as though we were playing poker, you know, and, yeah. and some of those gives are, I feel a, a tension in my chest when I feel anxiety. I can feel the constriction almost. That's, that's me responding and that's a sensory perception. One of the things that we can start to do as we train in this, right, what we're not doing is, you know, breath work is really important and I, I completely support that and promote it. Sure. And yet what we're also doing is cultivating a deeper understanding of the relationships between sensations, feelings, and emotions right? Oftentimes it's the emotional risal that occurs and we've completely missed those sensory experiences, the feeling perspe- perceptions, and we're just caught into that anger response. Mm. So an example of that is we're driving down the road and, and somebody cuts us off and, and it scares us, terrifies us, right? Because we're about to die. And so, you know, yeah. we have a, a physiological sensory response to that right? We move into kind of an amygdala response of, yeah. you know, fight, fight or fright mode, right? We, we freeze up or we, we activate, our heart starts to increase its, its, its pulses, right? Mm-hmm. So that it can distribute blood throughout the body, the body, then the muscles tense up. So it's activated, it's ready to respond. The, the eyes dilate, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things, sugar is, is glucose is surging through the Pumped body, the system. Yeah. digestion stops and we're ready to go. All of this is happening yet we're not even aware of it. All we do is within a moment, curse and scream and punch the accelerator. Now, the the ability for us to attune to the sensations arising in those stress responses can create the gap that is so critical for ethical discernment. And that is between the stimulus and the response. It's in that space that we have agency. And and Viktor Frankl, you know, one of the Mm, fathers of- Love this. Psychotherapy, psychology, psychiatry really highlights that. So this this doesn't have to be just an Eastern tradition piece, right? Yeah. We know this. The greatest mistakes we've made in our life is when we lack that ability to have space or control between the stimulus and the response. The same thing arises in that situation where we get cut off. If we're not in control of our body sensations, of our feelings, and thus our emotions, it will lead us to behaviors that is maladaptive and antithetical to compassion. For example, we punch the accelerator. Now, when we punch that accelerator, we neglect the fact that we may have passengers in the car. We neglect the fact that there are others on the road. We Mm. neglect all of these things, and we end up causing harm to ourselves and others. Whereas if we can cultivate sensory response, we can take a beat, we can regulate our nervous system through different strategies, and then we can employ the most significant muscle of our body, our rational thinking, and reappraise the situation. Nice. Whether it's true or not, we could tell ourselves, oh, that person may be having the worst day of their life. That person may be late to their wife's uh, pregnancy or have giving birth. You know, mm. That person may have all these other things, thus shifting our relationship with the experience and creating a compassionate response within non-harm. 
right? So the ethic of non-harm is compassion in and of itself. And it brings it back around to the full science scope, but it relies on common humanity, right? Expanding our circle of concern. It relies on these tools. So that would be nervous system regulation. Now coming to your question regarding self-compassion, mm. I want to qualify something before I respond to that, which is in the field of education, we have a lot of people that are incredibly compassionate to their students and to others. Yeah. And then they give so much. And so I, I don't want to present it as though compassion, self-compassion is, is reliant or, or causal to compassion for others, because we've seen instances of incredible acts of compassion for others, and then really vicious lack of self-compassion yeah. and, and very self-judgment. Helpful. Yeah, that's right. Self-criticism yeah. and so forth, but yet they give mm. everything. Absolutely. The problem is, yeah. is that without the cultivation of self-compassion, it leads to another significant phenomenon that is just gutting education around the world. And that is burnout, right? So one of the things that arises in the practice of compassion is this, this, there's an entry point into compassionate responses, which is empathy. So empathy activates in the part of the brain that is very similar to pain. So Mm. when your student or when your partner or when your dog feels pain, you feel pain. The ability to cultivate compassion shifts that towards an aspirational and engaged or motivational basis. So it arises on a cognitive, there's three aspects of compassion, cognitive, aspirational, and motivational. When that happens, it can much more easily be sustained indefinitely. Whereas one of the things that's very important in the practice of and the cultivation of self-compassion, which you brought up a key thing that I've actually confronted directly in my own life with my own kids and observing this idea of you know, body image, right? These, these, these false perceptions of Instagram and what, what Instagram holds and the fact that those aren't even real people or real things, you know, it, it is complete construct. I was in Colombia, and, and I, I was in this small rural village and we were looking at this bulletin board of C-learning, social, emotional, ethical learning, because we were looking at what they were doing in terms of their programming. Yeah. And, and it, the kids respond in these little posters of what is happiness for them. And I remember looking at it because they were kind of layered on top of each other. There was not enough board space and there were tons of kids responding to this. There was a picture of a girl, a shapely girl, looking at herself in the mirror in her underwear. And I was like, what is that doing here? Uh, and it was it threw me. And I was like, what's going on there? And when I read it, which is my minimal Spanish, mm-hmm. I was able to read, this girl wrote, because of self-compassion and see learning, I now have the tools to love myself as I am. Oh. And I was just like, holy crap, that's it. You know, I mean, for some girl in a that's very, it. very machismo culture of Colombia, where, you know, in quinceañeras, when girls turn 15, it's now becoming common practice to get a butt job. Um, wow. This girl was able to see herself as she was by primings, these tools of self-appraisal. So, you know, recognizing certain strategies of analytical contemplative practice within self-compassion, such as human beings make mistakes. That's what human beings do, right? So you can hold that. Or mistakes are a pathway for learning and growth. Every mistake I have mm-hmm. had has been a vehicle for that. So that growth mindset, Carol Dweck, Gabrielle mm-hmm. Ottengen kind of work. But then also, I can't control every external factor. And, and just holding that in an embodied way. And let me just add one kind of curriculum yeah. example because we're educators. Yeah. And then I'll back over to you. We're engaging in a curriculum integration model right now with C-Learning. And one of the best examples that I I really love related to self-compassion is 
pertains to Romeo and Juliet. So in the United States, almost every ninth grade kid, 14-year-old kid reads Romeo and Juliet. They read archaic prose. Some of them get it. Some of them don't. Either way, yeah. it's a suffer fest. And so <laughs> what we're doing is we're taking C-learning and we're taking three, three learning experiences related to self-compassion how to define it, what it is, certain practices, certain activities, certain reflections. And we set the stage for that unit. The kids don't do anything else with Romeo and Juliet, but at the end of the unit, having done those self-compassion learning experiences, they look at their final assessment and they receive a prompt, a written prompt, you know, comprehension prompt. And the question asks this, it says, when Juliet finds Romeo, how would the story have changed if she were able to cultivate self-compassion strategies. Wow. So the kids write and they think about it and they talk about it, having been primed to this, having knowing this, having applied it maybe to themselves over those three learning experiences. And they respond to that. And it becomes much more relevant and much more authentic. And then we do the real zinger, which is we break the fourth wall. And in the very next prompt, we ask them this, how would the story change for you the next time you get a B on your calculus exam, the next time you miss the winning penalty kick, if you were able to cultivate strategies of self-compassion. Wow. And I'm going to broach a very sensitive topic, but it's one that has plagued me my entire career. And in the Flathead Valley of Northwestern Montana, where I live, we yeah. don't have just suicide ideation. We have suicide contagion. That means when yeah. one kid commits death by suicide in one high school or one community, we start to see this preponderance of the behavior literally within days or weeks of it. I'm sick of having the response afterwards being, mm. you know, trauma intervention, crisis response, I would love to start getting proactive. And that yes. strategy is the pathway for accomplishing it. Wow, Rada. Oh, man. It's just, I'm just so struck by what matters most, you know, and I think the work that you and I both do through our unique contributions is about that humanizing aspect, like the fully human aspect of, I mean, I'm just still stuck with the, reflection from that that young woman um in Colombia. You know, I now have to to love myself as I am. And I think that, you know, and from that place of let's call it wholeness, self concept, right? Positive self-concept, whatever the case might be, like then you can still go and contribute and be like in the world, but not not be um so attached to getting validation outside yourself. And I, I really am curious about that. Obviously, I've been exploring a lot of psychology over the past decade, couple of decades. And my dad is a psychiatrist, I have to admit. So that's like oh, a whole other, I, it explains I, I a lot about Victor, who I am. Franco, you can hang. <laughs> Mate, <logo laughs> therapy, exactly, right? So the logos, you know, like the collapse of meaning is something that I want to, um, I think, have another conversation with you about. Because I think what we see with young people is you, you ask them, will the world be better? And they go, in the future, and, you know, increasingly there's this nihilistic perspective, which is no, because we look yeah. at what's happening and what's being done through big system changes and conflict add, and everything else. I, I, yeah. I, I want to let you prompt a quick thing, but I want to add one thing sure. that is both terrifying and very personal. Yeah. After we saw each other in Helsinki, I went to Stockholm for the Inner Development Goals Summit. Great. And, and I was asked to speak on a panel. I told them, I've got my kids with me. So how does that play? And they said, would they be willing to share? Oh, interesting. What's interesting about that point is, excuse me. Yeah. My daughter's 10 years old. She's mm. in fifth grade. 
She's prepubescent. And when she referenced how scene learning is shaping her, immediately where she went to was body shaming. At 10 mm. years old, she's yeah. experiencing this. And because of the tools that she's developed within C-Learning, she's able to at least use a strategy of self-talk, yeah. right? Positive self-talk, just as you referenced, you know, like she's able to hold that and, and substantiate that. And what was wild is women and men in the session applauded as though it was some great revelation, you know? And I, I think that's an important insight yeah. that younger and younger kids are experiencing this. And, and the other brief insight to that point, and mm. I don't know if this spurs anything further, if you had something mm. else, but mm. when I was starting my career as a district administrator, I went to a local superintendent and I asked him a question, kind of a mentoring question. I said, what, what's the, what's the biggest issue you're facing in your school district? And I was waiting to hear budget. You know, we just don't have enough money, too many, too few resources. Mm. That's not what he said. What he said to me was something that was terrifying and has stayed with me my entire career. And that is the instance of extreme behavioral issues with younger and younger kids. Yeah. That's the thing that is rocking schools. And, and so, you know, until we can address that, you know, from a 10 year old girl having body shaming issues yeah. to young children that are uncontrolled violence, you know, another piece of work that I've been reading is by uh, Nadine Burke Harris. She was the former surgeon general out oh, of yes. California. And, and she really made the connection definitively between adverse childhood experiences, yeah. trauma, and behavioral. And, and the stat that I, I want to throw to you is a child who has four ACEs scores, which is, you know, parents had substance abuse or, you know, neglect or divorce or so forth. Those are all one ACE score. Yeah. A child who has four or more of those, and there's only a list of 10, mm. has... 32 times more likely to have behavioral issue within schools. 32, not, not 3.2. Yeah. 32 times, 3,200% more likelihood of having behavioral issues just through that alone. And until we're addressing the elephant in the room, yes, we're going to constantly be chasing this issue. Yeah. Mate, it's just, it strikes me that our, our paradigms are unequipped to deal with to even respond appropriately to that, let alone be preventative. Um, the ACE, the Adverse Childhood Experience work, I think is so critical. And one of our incredible colleagues, Dr. Amy Fabry, is our director of early years, and she's joined us a few months ago. And she's just so on mission saying, we have to, I know you're working on this, but you have to understand the early years, 90% of brain development, you know, zero to five, you know. And I actually think, I don't know. I think we sometimes shy away from this because it sounds a bit fluffy, but like we talk about self-therapeutic models or, you know, um, psychological support or social workers. But I think there's, we always need to be talking about healing uh, in our work collectively, like collective healing. And I think the restorative justice work that many great schools use, for example, is partially that modality. Like, it's like, how do you actually, if you've had these experiences, how do you heal so that you can regulate i mean i think this is where we we might we're gonna to have to have a part two you know because we've covered so much ground that um let me make a quick connection to restore practice if that's okay yeah um, sure. because it's an important qualifier i helped bring restorative practices to my school district and and i was really proud of it I, I really felt like it was a significant move towards shifting culture and approaches to student behavior student discipline you know student relationships yeah 
With that, restorative practices relies on a protocol. You sit kids down, you go through those questions, you use a talking stick, and you work through things. But what I realize now yeah. is the lack of pre-work that was mm. done with restorative practice. For example, we never taught kids how to do mindful dialogue. Yeah. I never taught kids how to regulate their nervous system. We sit them down. They just got into this huge fight. They're completely dysregulated with this experience. And we haven't built the anticipatory or the prerequisite skills. I also haven't taught them on how to cultivate shared common humanity with the person who just beat them up sitting across from them. So again, right point. schools are so limited in time and training resources. And we're looking for these solutions. We're looking for these fixes. But until we can substantively dig in and understand it's about the development of these competencies and skills on the part of kids, we're always going to be a little shy of, of that solution, that resolution that we're looking for. I don't know if that resonates or makes sense to you. No, absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. And I think it's uh I think it's just one of the features of like hardworking educators right now who are, and the data is, you know, there are so many that are on the verge, if not experiencing burnout. And there are so many that are doing incredible work, sometimes despite, not because of the kind of system conditions. And that's, I think, comes to the core of our work um, at the learning future through Karanga, through C learning, whatever the country, you know, the contribution to the preferred future that we want. Um, wow, mate, I've got, so I got a whole page of notes, a whole page, um, which is wonderful. Uh, you know, we spoke about compassion science. You delved us into that. We talked about regulation, mindful dialogue, reciprocity. Uh, the study about priming, I think it's so interesting. Um, and when you think about how do you expand that circle of concern and compassion through that, you know, regulation, dysregulation, co-regulation, you know, there's a whole piece of work there that, again, I think it really support and equip educators to be able to do their work really well. Um, piece on burnout. The idea of common humanity, non-harm, um, adverse childhood experiences, suicidal contagion, um, negativity bias, and ethical discernment. So not bad, mate, for 35 minutes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we've got yes. I actually I feel pretty uh, good. I mean it's here's my heels good, mate. Really good. Um for someone who, you know, is making is failing a lot, as you would say, and learning a lot. Therefore, um yeah. I, I'd love the final question just to be Please you know, based on all of that landscape that we've covered today, what is the essence that you want to leave us with through, you know, your work as a school leader, as an educator, now as a researcher and as a program director at Emory, what's your take home message for us? Yeah, I'll take just a moment for reflection. One of the failings uh, I used to hang with sustainability education. It's one of my greater passions. It's what I did my doctorate work in. And I, I think one of the failings of sustainability education, climate education, was that they use scare tactics to try and shape behavior. And, and I think we need not to do that in this situation. We've talked about the urgent need and the dire conditions. We know that we live it, you know, I mean, it's the human experience. Um, and, and, School is an impossible reality. You've got kids with such incredible needs. You've got very limited community resources. 
Of course, it's going to be challenging. Of course, it's going to be difficult. It was always difficult right from the onset, regardless mm -hmm. of the pandemic pre and post. So I think what I do want to highlight is just these are skills that can be learned. Mm -hmm. These are skills that can contribute to the well-being of you and your students. And these are skills, importantly, and I, I say this from a very true and embodied way, have benefited me in my own life with mm. what matters most. And that is being a dad and being a husband. Yeah. You know, I, because of the cultivation of this on a, on a personal level, in terms of my own practice, I'm not perfect by any measure, but I'm a little better than what it was. I can cultivate patience a bit more. I can put things in perspective. I can reappraise you know, the magnitude of anxiety I've felt, the ability to navigate skillfully relationships, the ability for me to lean in and to be vulnerable, you know, all of those things I've seen come together. Yes. And, and I, I feel confident that these skills and, and whether it's C-learning, social emotional ethical learning, or our adult program, cognitively based compassion training, there are so many high quality programs and I mm. firmly believe that we all rise with the tide. And yeah. so if you're interested in bringing this into your schools or into your personal life, there are many strategies there. And, and importantly, there are communities of practitioners that have created a structure for you to do that. So I guess I have hope and, mm. and I, for all the intensity and all of the concern we've talked about in our time together today, I just want to leave with that because I'm seeing so much happening in the community of C learning around the world and people are filled with a sense of hope and purpose. And we are seeing real benefit, whether it's my own daughter or a girl in Colombia. I mean, those yeah. are the wins and, and it's important to amplify those as opposed to exaggerate the negativity. Rada, amazing work. Thank you for what you do. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for being with us today. Thank you.